Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your spirit so that our hearts would be receptive to the words of your Son. Lord, I pray that my words would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Any teacher can tell you that there's always that student. You know, the one that asks the particular question or says the particular thing or does something that sets off the lecture. You know that kid. We've all met him or her. Don't feel too much sympathy, though, for this poor guy in our gospel reading who goes up to Jesus with a request and sets off the lecture about covetousness. It's actually pretty unlikely that this was a sincere request. In the previous chapter, Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees for their greed and other sorts of wickedness. He's already addressed them for their greed. And we read at the end of chapter 11 that because they were angry at him, they were seeking to provoke him into saying something that would trap himself. And so they were sending people into the crowd to pepper him with the hard questions. Given that he's just rebuked them for their greed, and given this guy showing up and saying this, it's unlikely he was sincere. But even if he was, we shouldn't feel a great deal of sympathy for him because he wasn't actually asking Jesus to judge the situation. He came in with the matter already resolved. My brother has to do this. And all he wants is Jesus' seal of approval on it, his authority behind it. But Jesus takes this moment, and he uses this moment to tell us about the danger of covetousness or greed. And then he backs that up, illustrates it with a parable that shows us how insecure our riches actually are. Covetousness is actually more important than we might think. I don't know about y'all, but it's actually not the sin that I think about very often. I think about so many others before I ever come around to thinking about covetousness. But it's actually worth our time. And it's more important than we think. There are a lot of theologians who've said over the centuries that covetousness is actually the original sin, that it's the primary sin. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, desiring and longing for something that was not theirs to desire for, longing for God's authority to determine right and wrong. It's an act of covetousness. Think about the reading that we just heard in Colossians 3 where Paul tells us he warns us from covetousness because he says it is idolatry. It's putting something in the position of God. Think about the Ten Commandments. If Paul is correct, and he is, that covetousness is a form of idolatry, this means that the entire Ten Commandments is bracketed with warnings against idolatry in one form or another. It begins, have no other gods. And it ends, don't covet. The whole thing could be summed up in don't worship anything else. All the other misdeeds flow from that. Even thinking about the Ten Commandments a little more, it's actually this sort of unique commandment amongst the rest. All the other commandments address actions. I mean, theoretically, you could keep commandments one through nine by force of will. I say theoretically because I don't know anyone who has, including myself. 
that theoretically you could grit your teeth and determine never to tell a lie. But we run hard into commandment 10. Don't desire anything inappropriately. Try stopping that one in your heart. Addressing an issue that most of us go, how in the world do I control inappropriate desires? Covetousness, like I said, is more important than we think. I think it's actually important for us to consider it for just a few minutes this morning because we actually live in a culture that says, whatever you desire, go get it. We live in a culture that says, unless you're harm, I mean, we say this explicitly, unless you harm somebody else, you should get anything you desire. In fact, to not live according to your desires is seen as being inauthentic, incomplete. We live in a culture that says, if you desire it, you should get it. Treat yourself. Life is about fulfilling yourself. The idea of living with unfulfilled desires is antithetical to the way that our culture works. So I think it's actually good for us to think hard about covetousness for a minute. From our culture's perspective, this wealthy landowner did nothing wrong. He has a huge harvest. He examines the market, and he says, if I dump all this grain on the market right now, the excess in supply, that'll drive prices down, I won't do well. I'm going to store till next year when there's not as much grain on the market, then I can charge more, make a little more profit, and I will be secure. It is a perfect business decision. If you wonder whether Jesus understands free market economics, this parable is proof that he knows exactly what he's talking about. It's perfectly measured. Don't flood the market. Save it till next year. You'll make more money. From our culture's perspective, this man did nothing wrong. That's called good security. It's called good business. In other words, we need to think about covetousness because if anything, our sympathies are with this fool in the parable more than they are with Jesus. As an aside, and this is probably self-evident, covetousness is about a lot more than just material wealth. I mean, obviously, the example Jesus is using is material wealth because the question that prompted it is about an inheritance. But we can covet a host of things. We can covet power. We can covet influence over our friends or in our workplace. We can covet the admiration of others, a reputation of a certain sort. We can covet pleasure, leisure time, freedom from responsibility. There's a host of things that we can covet. It's not just money. But money is a particularly concrete example, and it's the one that we're actually looking at today. Part of the difficulty with actually thinking about covetousness is just recognizing what it is. It's recognizing that even defining it. I mean, the ordinary de definition of covetousness is that it's inordinate desire, inappropriate desire. It's desire that gets selfish, desire that gets out of bounds. But I mean, if y'all are like me, there's a lot of times when you desire something, and if someone were to say to you, is that desire out of bounds, you would probably say, well, I don't know. Like, where, where is the boundary? When does it cross over into something that it shouldn't be? I mean, it's not wrong to desire money to provide for our families. But there's a point when the desire for money becomes covetousness. And where's the line? Where's the boundary? You see what I mean? It can be hard to talk about covetousness just because it's hard to actually recognize when we're in covetousness and when we're just in the realm of ordinary, appropriate desire. It's clear that something's wrong to desire 
if the thing's not ours to desire. Think about the commandment. We're not supposed to desire another person's spouse. The thing itself is wrong. This is Adam and Eve coveting God's ability and authority to determine right and wrong. The thing itself is wrong. But what about when the thing itself is right? Like wanting a raise so that we can provide for our kids. When do we cross the boundary line? We can see it sometimes in hindsight when we see what happens to us when we don't get it. In other words, if that thing is not given to us, and what grows in our hearts is anger and bitterness, that's a good chance we were actually looking at a covetous desire. We can sometimes see when it causes us to do things to get the thing that we ought not be doing. If a person is lying to get money, to get the raise, if they're cheating on their taxes to get ahead, we can say that desire for economic security was an inappropriate desire because the things that came out of it were sinful. In other words, there's moments when we can actually see it and recognize it. But there's also plenty of moments that we desire things where it isn't clear in real time whether the desire is appropriate or whether it's inappropriate, whether it's legitimate or whether it's out of bounds. It's here, I think, where Jesus' parable actually helps us a great deal. This parable gives us a couple of ways of actually thinking about our desires, and that's what I want to talk with you all about for a moment. Listen to it again. This is verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This parable is helpful because it offers us a couple of ways of examining our desires. You know what's missing from this man's business plan? You know what's missing from this man's calculation? Any reference to anyone other than himself. This is actually the first clue that Jesus gives us to analyze our own desires, is the utter selfishness of this man's calculations. He never once says, what would be best for my neighbor? He never once says, even what would be best for my family? He never once says what would be best for my town. There is a complete focus on what is best for me. And I think that's actually a helpful tool. Because there's times when we're desiring something, and if we were to ask the question, is this desire inappropriate, being asked the question, have you considered anyone other than yourself in this matter? And if no one else has entered into your thinking, there's a good chance that you're dealing with a covetous desire. Another thing that's in this parable that I think helps us analyze thing is his orientation towards God. This is a little bit more complicated, but I don't think it's too hard to understand. But it springs from the idea that God calls him a fool. In the Bible, a fool is a particular person. The fool is the person who lives as if God doesn't exist. The fool is the person who has no thought for God in the matter. Think about Psalm 14. 
the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the Bible's definition of a fool. The person who acts and lives with no perspective on God, as if God doesn't exist, as if he'll never show up, as if he has no desires, no particular character, as if we know owe nothing to him and depend on him in no ways. God calls this man a fool because, again, think through his business calculation. You know what's missing in it? It's pretty clear, isn't it? There is zero sense of why did God give me this harvest. There is zero sense of what would God want me to do with it. There is zero sense of the authority of God who actually created the grain. There is zero sense of the fact that God is actually overall. He's living as if God doesn't exist. He's the definition of a fool. And what happens, and this is where covetousness actually becomes this form of idolatry. When we live as if God doesn't exist, what does this harvest turn into? It turns into his security. Not God. His security. This thing becomes his security. But in becoming his security, in actual fact, it becomes his God. It becomes an idol. Because he is not thinking about God. The point is is that when our desires don't take God's presence into account, when in our desires we assume that God won't show up, or we just don't think about the fact that God may show up, when we don't care about what he may say about our desires, when we can't see the relationship between the thing that we desire and God, and that's a weird question. But I challenge you, when you find yourself desiring something, to say, is there a relationship between this thing and God? And if you can't figure it out, there's a good chance that you could, should back up from that thing, that you're actually talking about a covetous desire. The biblical depiction of a fool, again, is one who lives as if God doesn't exist. And Jesus, in warning us of covetousness, paints the picture of someone who appeases his desires without ever asking the question, what does God have to do with this? When we live like that, we turn the things that we desire into our gods. In other words, idolatry, what Paul says in Colossians 3, covetousness as idolatry. The summary of this in verse 21 is Jesus saying, this is like anyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You catch both those points in his summary. Treasure for himself, utter selfishness, and not rich towards God. No thought to God in the matter. So we step back from that, and we have two ways of actually analyzing our desires. Is it purely for myself? Then I'm probably dealing with covetousness. Am I considering God at all in this matter? Probably covetousness. And Jesus' point in the parable is pretty clear. That when you operate that way, there is no life. Think about the beginning of verse 15, what he says. He says, take guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. You operate that way, there is no life there. Think about what God says to the man at the end. Fool, this night your life is required of you. Again, there is no life in that place. His point to these people listening, and you can imagine that poor guy who asked the question, his point to them is guard against covetousness. Because there is no life there. There is no life there. There is no life there. But this is where I think it's good for us to actually bring ourselves. Because up to this point, you go, okay, fine, that's nice theory. I've got two tools for analyzing my desire. Is it selfish? 
have I considered God in the matter? And I can accept the theory, and we all know it's true, by the way, that there is no life in the things that we covet. Accrue all the money in the world, and you will not get life out of it. Everybody who's seen a really rich and really unhappy person knows that this is true. Get all the freedom in the world. Do whatever you want. There is no life there. Because we've all seen people ruin themselves with excess freedom. Get all the influence and the power. You, know, you get the point. We know these things are true, theoretically. But it touches us because it is so easy to fall into the trap, even though we know this is true, to fall in the trap to saying, if I had this, I would be fulfilled. If I had this, my life would be enough. It's so easy, and we rarely say this out loud, because I think if we said this out loud, we would actually recognize the absurdity of what we're actually doing and saying. But it's so easy to put far too much weight on the things that we desire, to expect them to deliver us, to expect them to actually give us fulfillment, happiness, joy. In other words, we're looking at the circumstances of our life, and we're saying to them, give me life. Give me life. Again, not in those words because we would recognize the absurdity. But that's what our actions are doing. We're desiring them out of proportion. We're expecting them to do something that they cannot do. Remember Jesus' words, once life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We could continue that and say, one's life does not consist in the abundance of leisure time. One's life does not consist in the influence you have at work. One's life does not consist in perfect physical health. We could keep going with this with all the things that we long for, that we say, if only I had this, things would be okay. I would be fulfilled. I would be happy. We look so easily. We fall into the trap of looking for life in things that cannot deliver. The same trap as this rich fool. Again, I said, I think when we approach this, even though we won't want to, the rich fool makes far more sense to us than the perspective of Jesus. Because we can totally understand the idea of, look, I just got a lot in my bank account. I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to ask this stuff to do for me what I want to make me happy. All the while, all the while, when we look at those things and we say or think, if only I had this, I would be fulfilled. We never ask those basic questions Jesus prompts us to ask. Have you considered anybody else? Have you thought about anybody else in this desire? Have you thought about this thing's relationship to God? Have you asked whether he wants you to have it? Have you asked what he would have you do with it if you were given it? In other words, we don't use the tools that Jesus gives us to determine whether these things are covetousness. The things that we long for, the things that we long for inordinately, the things that we long for expecting to give us life, the things that we desire for selfish reasons, the things that we long for without ever asking, what does God have to do with this? We all know those things can't deliver what, they need, what we need. We all know that they can't bring life. Anybody who's gone down that path has discovered the fact that they leave us on the other end empty. They cannot do what we want them to do. Whether you're talking again about our careers, our leisure time, our pleasure, the perfect home life, our bank accounts, they can't bring life. They can be blessings. We need to be clear. They can actually be gifts from God to us, but that's getting back into that right orientation towards God. 
Because if you see the thing and you see it as a gift from God, suddenly it's no longer covetousness. Because it's a gift, you realize he might give it at a season and take it away at a season because he knows what's best. We're seeing it rightly. They can become blessings. But the things in and of themselves can't bring life. To desire them as if they can is to turn them into idols. So turn them into idols. And it's to actually enter into a place of futility a place where we're chasing life where we cannot find them. Yet this is what we do, is it not? Seeking for things that would actually bring life that can't do it. Yet all the while, all the while our Lord is saying to us, I would give you life. All the while, he says, as we chase those other things, saying, provide for me, do for me, fulfill me. All the while, he is saying to us, I would give you life. I would give you life. I would give you life. The thing that we long for is not withheld from us. It's freely on offer. But we look in all these other places, asking, trying to make something happen that can never happen. And yet he looks at you and he looks at me saying, my life is actually offered to you. I don't withhold it from those who seek. This is the thing that's actually almost saddening and startling about us, is that we desire in all the wrong places, seeking something that would be freely given. Freely given. I think this is what lies behind Jesus' parable. Think about that last phrase. That's like everybody who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so the question then becomes, so, so if there is actually life on offer, what might it become? What might it be to be rich towards God? What would a life look like? It's not questing after things that can't deliver and is simply receiving from the Lord what he freely offers. What would it look like? The beauty of that question is that the answer is not complicated. Jesus freely offers his life to you. He says to you, I will give you all that I am, all that I have, he says, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to get it because you're good enough. He says, I'll give it to you freely because of my goodness. He offers his life to all who ask. And you say, so what do I do? The answer is simple. Turn to Jesus and say, fill me with your life. This is, in a certain sense, you go, well, that's like conversion, right, Stephen? And you go, no, that's every day of the Christian's life. Because if y'all are like me, every single day you find yourself looking for life in some other place than Jesus Christ himself. And the call continually is don't go down the path of futility. Beware covetousness. My life is freely given to you. Don't go try to squeeze life out of a place that you can't get it. Turn to me. Turn to me. And what we find when we turn to him is the one who knew no covetousness. His very life he was willing to offer away to those in need. Unlike the rich man, he thought of the poor when he had wealth. He said, I'll give it all away. His very life was always oriented towards the Father, saying, whatever your will is, that's what I'll do. He's the antithesis of this rich man, freely giving himself away. And one of the beauties that we discover in the Christian life is that the more we become like that, the more the life of God flows through us. The Christian life flips the world upside down. The world says, acquire and you will have enough. 
And the Christian life says, give everything away and you will discover life itself. This is the pattern of our Savior. And this is what he offers to you. Amen.